0: In Isaiah 55, and you should have a half-page outline if you'd like to follow along. Uh, Some of those things I'll I'll deal with in more detail than others, but the purpose that I have in that outline is not that it's a fill-in-the-blank sort of thing. Uh, though that's that can be fun, and I have to confess that we were at a church in New York that had that, and we would always try to guess what the uh, what the next blank would be. Um, but the purpose is that there's hopefully enough scripture on here that you could reflect on it throughout the week, uh, that you could look at different passages that maybe I haven't dealt with in any detail, so you can see Isaiah 5, Isaiah 6. We're going to look at those briefly briefly. Um, But it's also not a bad idea to go back and reread them carefully, if for no other reason than to see if I'm uh, off my rocker, to see if what I've actually said is the case. So the Bereans in the book of Acts were considered more noble than the Thessalonians because they sought the scriptures for themselves to see if what Paul said was actually true. So if they could do that with the apostle Paul... I'm not going to be the least bit offended if you go ahead and, and read Isaiah 5 and 6 for yourself to check and see what I've said is actually the case. And what might be even more awesome is you might, midweek, send me an email and say, hey, I don't think that you are quite on in this, and I'm not offended by that in the least. We could actually talk about Scripture. <laughs> I know, mine's just being blown all over the place. And I could talk about how I arrived at a conclusion, and you could say, well, I was kind of looking at it this way, but in the meantime, we've actually talked about God's Word. I think that's what fellowship actually is, so anyway, uh, feel free to, to look at, at that as as we move along. What I'd like to talk about today um, is something quite near and dear to my heart. Uh, I became a Christian in college, and for me, it was real, that when I read things in Scripture, I didn't have the contempt of having grown up in the church. None of the phrases that I read were familiar to me, uh, so when I read it, I believed it to be true. So I came across different passages where Jesus says in the book of Acts that it's more blessed to give than to receive, and I just believed that. I didn't, I didn't need proof of that. It was in Scripture, and, and that's, that's what I believed. Believed. I didn't mock it because I didn't grow up in the church. I hadn't been hearing people say that my whole life. When Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly or to the full, I just believed that he meant that when he said it. And what I was confronted with in the early stages of my faith, and perhaps no less now but in more subtle form, I noticed that my outlook changed in a lot of ways and then in other ways it didn't. I noticed that the sin that was present within my own heart, within my own soul, within my own mind was still there. God didn't use a spiritual vacuum cleaner to, to suck all my sinful inclinations, my self-centered attitudes, my, my meanness or my responding in anger. God didn't just... Do that automatically. So, the question that I wrestled with in the early stages is how do I contend with sin in my life? That I'm faithfully doing the things I know to do, I'm reading scripture, I'm being reoriented, renewed in my mind, as Paul says in in Romans 12, but it always feels like you're carrying around this ton of bricks. And I have never, or up to that point, had never experienced anything that I would consider helpful. So I'm that annoying kid in Sunday school that would, I would ask people at my church in college and say, boy, I just really am noticing that I struggle with this, (laughs) that becoming a Christian, it didn't just passive slide off me. I still found myself saying things I didn't want to say. I found myself thinking things I didn't want to think, relating to people in ways that were destructive. And I didn't find that there was any switch that God threw that really changed that. And I'm sad to report that there was, well, both happy and sad to report, there was a lot of agreement, like, yeah, (laughs) but then there wasn't anything helpful moving forward. That when I asked people, how should I contend with the darkness in my own heart, I received spiritual answers, but ones that I never found really helped. And just pray about it more. Now, I'm not going to deny that prayer is an important thing and certainly things we need to put before the Lord. But this praying about things, I wasn't lacking direction in what God was requiring of me. Right? Fits of anger are universally wrong in Scripture. So I didn't need to you know, really seek God out to see is that something that I should be doing or not. So I never found that to be helpful. So then the question became, what is uh, something that's helpful? And believe it or not, the Puritans were most helpful uh, in this regard. I picked up a book by John Owen, uh, referred to as The Mortification of Sin in the Life of the Believer. And if you've ever read the Puritans, you know that the titles usually take up the whole cover They're just long-winded and even making sense of the titles in and of themselves can be fun. But he offered what really I found to be a compelling vision for contending with sin in my life. And I don't want to frame this negatively, but I want to look at this issue of more, not less. Because I read Jesus' statement in John's Gospel that I came that you might have life and have it to the full. Have it abundantly. I believe that Jesus meant that. And I believe that the gospel opens us up to more, not to less. And I'm going to keep repeating that throughout. That when God calls us into relationship with himself, when he begins to form our worldview in Christ, when we're being renewed in the image of our creator, that opens us up into far larger worlds. More, not less. It's not just taking on a new set of rules that, okay, now I've got to obey everything that Jesus said and it's just this suffocating burden and now all these things that I, I want to do but I can't. That's part of it for a while, but part of maturity in Christ seems to be that you, you don't give because of somebody compelling you to give, you give because you're generous, that God has actually changed your heart. And I believe it's in 1 John, I forgot to myself on the reference, his commands are not a burden Right? That's what the Bible says about the commandments of Jesus. So I want to look at this issue of more and not less. And it might be helpful just to have a little bit of a clarifying definition. There's a lot of people in the room. And when we say more, not less, you may be thinking more in terms of quantity, that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. The problem with that mentality is the Bible, uh, that if you look at, people that God really used, I'm thinking of Jeremiah in the cistern, right? I'm thinking that as he's standing up to his knees in the muck and the mire, I just never hear the health and wealth people go to that passage. Uh, And when you look at the people that God really uses in scripture, it's not about how much they have. So I want to make this distinction, and it's right here on your insert, of quality over quantity, So when I say more, not less, I'm talking about an overall quality of life that changes. Not that Jesus is going to give you all the stuff that you want, you'll be indistinguished from your neighbors, and then you get to go to heaven when you die. Like That's a pretty sweet-sounding deal. Just always find that Scripture is like a roadblock in those areas. So I really want to push this Quality over quantity. And I'm going to stop right there because it's pretty important. And I want to make sure that, A, everybody understands what those two words mean to make sure that I've been clear because it actually will get less clear if, if that doesn't make sense. So it's not about how much. It's about what kind. Uh, so what did Jesus mean in John 10.10? How do we contend with sin in our lives? And I want to start to wrestle with the idea, if you haven't, is to ask, how is the gospel expanding your life qualitatively? Not quantitatively, like, well, before I only had a, a one-bedroom house, and then I became a Christian. Woo! look at this. I got a nice, nice van, a Maserati, and you know, a, a really big house. That's wonderful. Uh, there are people in Scripture, actually, who opened their homes to the meeting of, of Christians. They were wealthy people. I just challenge you to name 15 of them. Right. So they're there. I'm not going to deny any of that. But the life that God calls us to doesn't seem to to have quantity attached to it as much as this abundant life that he's calling us to is is quality. And I want to start with what I believe to be a simple premise in terms of understanding and then really, really hard to live out. So understanding it's not a problem, it's actually doing it that's the problem. In order to contend with sin, you have to love something or someone else more than sin. Now, we can fill the room with analogies here, and I could just use my own marriage as an example. What is it that compels faithfulness in my marriage? Uh, There's two possibilities. One is, I'm afraid of what God will do to me if I break fellowship with that. So there's the fear model. That if I were to, uh, to disrupt this fellowship, I would be judged for it. That if this marriage were to disintegrate, it would be because of my uh, sinful inclinations, my self-centeredness. It obviously wouldn't be Cynthia, because you all know her. Uh, it w- would definitely be me. So there's that fear route, that I, I'm held by fear. The other possibility, and one that I'm happy to report I'm a part of, is The relationship is so compelling that I love her more, and I've found over the years that that has only increased. And you can bring your jaded cynicism later uh, about, I I don't really like those kind of offhanded marriage jokes. I I just, you know, like, oh, it's such a suffocating burden. Okay, well, that's tragic. um, But there's something actually compelling and joyful about it. Meaning that I'm held captive by the love that we share with each other. I'm not afraid, oh, God's going to torch me if I abandon this. Do you see the difference? You're held in one case by fear, which doesn't work. (laughs) Can I just tell you that? It's not enough. Right? God, the history of the Old Testament shows that God just wiped out an entire generation of people. Did that work? For like 10 minutes, right? They just came out of Egypt. God just watched what they did, or what God did on their behalf, and within minutes, they're worshiping the idol. The fear thing just isn't enough to keep you. You have to be captivated by something. Does that make sense? That something has to be compelling. And let's bring it all right home, just because this is a a fun exercise. Is the gospel expanding your life in these qualitative ways? In order for me to stop something, I have to love something else more. So in order for me to stop gossiping about people, which is sinful, as the New Testament states clearly, in order for me to contend with that, in order for me to do something about it, I have to love something more. In order for me to fight pride in my own heart, you can rush right in with pride's a fine thing. Paul was a pretty stubborn guy and it helped him to stand up in his faith and I certainly wouldn't deny any of that. But that's not really what I'm talking about. Uh, You know what I'm talking about. In order to contend with that arrogance, I would have to love something or someone else more. And we're all human. I think that we are universally loving and worshiping people. Whether you're worshiping at a football stadium, worshiping God in a sanctuary setting, we're all oriented toward love. So if you think of the guy uh, who will stand uh, at a Patriots game in December with no shirt on, with a P painted on his chest. What would make a person do that? Okay, we can call it insanity, but on, on a given Sunday, <laughs> I'm going to do the math here, and then I'll go flip through the NFL network. What would make a person do that? Yeah, sure, it's insane. It's not a burden to them. They're, not, they're probably not sitting at the tailgate party before the game, like, oh, and then I've got to make sure that it's uppercase, and going you know, through the catalog of things that, that has... They just do it because, well, there's a lot of reasons, but they love what they're doing. It's not a burden for them. They're captivated by it. They're compelled. That's exactly uh, what I'm talking about. What makes a person dress up like Darth Vader to go to a film premiere. Why does somebody do that? And you can mock it all you want. There's some level of captivation there. And again, you can, you can mock it if you want, um, but the mentality is something that I understand. That they are captivated by the Star Wars universe and, and there is some fellowship going on there that there's a common affinity, right? Try to drag people into spiritual formation and you find that things are quite different. So the real trick is, how do you change this spiritually so that reading your Bible every day isn't a suffocating burden, but something that's captivating, life-giving, and opens you up into far more than you would have expected? So I want to consider for a minute a common sin list, and you're going you're gonna to do the work here, not me. I'm just going to stand here and try to facilitate. Uh, let's look at the sin of greed. Now, we're in New England, particularly in New Hampshire, always duking it out with Vermont in terms of being the least generous state in the Union. So, I think that's probably a fair place to start. What would you have to... And think about it for a second. You don't have to just rush right in with your spiritual answers. What would you have to love more in order to fight greed? Ooh, okay. In, be more specific, though. So when we love our neighbor as ourself, meaning we... Give just as much to them as we do to ourselves. OK, give more than you take. Another, that's absolutely true. Is there anybody who can, can say, honestly, that you are giving out more than you are taking in? In any way, like financially, you get a check for 200 dollars. Are you keeping 100 and giving 100 away? If I were to look at your paycheck or my paycheck, because I'm indicting myself up here as well, if I do, I really split that check right down the middle and look for ways to be a blessing to my neighbor. Is that a yes or a no? Sometimes, okay. So, but that's what love your neighbor as yourself means. And I'm not saying that paying your bills, financial stewardship. I'm not saying that's greedy. But we're also right on the cusp of Thanksgiving and Christmas, so it's, it's writ large all over, uh, all over our society that, boy, when you get out of bed for Black Friday, say what you want again, what would make a person pitch a tent outside Best Buy for two weeks? Well, the iPhone 6, right? Yeah? Daniel? PlayStation 4, right. Now, just in the Fairness Doctrine, I'm going to be starting a Bible study tomorrow at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, Sign-ups are in the back. Yeah, I apologize. You'll just have to pitch your tent right after church because I haven't left you more time. But we're really going to dig into the book of Isaiah. We'll start at 4 o'clock in the morning. I only printed off three sheets for a sign-up sheet, so, um, you know... You're going to want to rush back there and just carve your name into the table because I know that it's going to overflow. Now, I'm obviously being facetious, but you see the disconnect. So I would have to love somebody else more than myself in order not to be greedy. What about gossip? Who or what would I have to love more in order to stop doing that? Yeah. You'd have to love the person that you're talking about more than your need to build yourself up at their expense. You'd have to look at that person the way that Psalm 8 does, that they're clothed with glory and honor, that Genesis 1 says they are created in God's image. You'd have to look at them like that, and not as sport, Anybody particularly good at that one? Like viewing people as image bearers of God doesn't mean we're not fallen, but I I think that the temperature in the room maybe just dropped a little bit, uh, that God is actually just as serious about those things as he is with other things. So you get what I'm saying, I think. I'd have to love something else more. Um, The more I think about societal issues, the more I wonder if the way of Jesus actually offers something better. Meaning, like, to think about the example of Jesus. When I am wronged in some way, what is the Christian response? Is it to lash out at them in angry ways, to engage in character assassination, what am I to do? I'm to be reconciled to them. Forgiveness, forgiveness right. Is there anything more countercultural than forgiveness? Like a, a church body like ourselves that can hold it together in fellowship with each other, even in spite of our disagreements, that we deal with things like emotionally mature adults and we confront each other, not I'm going to retreat to my corner and poison the well with myself and my kids, talk badly about uh, the other people in the church, or am I going to fall forward, am I going to engage in that kind of fellowship? Which one do you think that you could defend from the New Testament? And I know that all of our natural inclination is just to I'm taking my ball and going home, but Imagine if we were to engage in that kind of life, that we found a vision of community life that was really compelling, so that it was awkward at times, but again, so compelling that we just wanted to be a part of it, that it wasn't a burden uh, to have that happen. So we could multiply examples, and there's a lot of us sitting here, and there's probably as many different sin issues as we could care to confront. But if we cultivate this kind of life to think that, boy, what could I engage in that would help to free me from some of these things? What about the cultural sin of laziness? I get these conversations a lot, and I find that actually doing some of this stuff is, is easy, um, and some of it's not. So if your issues are associated with electronics, right, that you spend perhaps a disproportionate amount of time engaged in your online persona through Facebook or playing games that may, I mean, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with uh, any of those games, but you know you kind of spend a disproportionate amount of time doing it. Anybody? Okay, so what would be an actual practice that we could engage in that would help to fight that? Shut it off. But, I, and this is where I'm going to give full disclosure. I am... I do that, but I will find a way. <laughs> it is unbelievable. Like so uh, I've been watching a particular series of television shows actually for the second time, just to let you know how much time I'm wasting. And it, I found I just watching it too much, watching it on my laptop, so I decide I am leaving my laptop at work. I have I'm an obsessive person. I need to have things out of my reach. Because I can't sit there with the laptop and not, at least yet, because I, don't have, I haven't cultivated that, right? So shutting it off is not enough. Do you know why? Because it's, it's still in the room and you know the code to the phone. <laughs> Anyone found success in doing that? All right, so we've got an offer, that, that, and that's fine. What it means is it doesn't work and we need to find something else to do. So what's another possibility? Okay, now I'm going to rush right in because I, I hear that one. In this day and age, how could you possibly live without a cell phone or a device? And I'm not, I mean, I, I, that came out in a mocking way, but I get it. You can't really do it. It's not practical. So you have to work within those confines. What is something you could embed in your practice that would help you to gain some freedom in that area? And while you're thinking, I'll just talk a little bit more, we always think that these things are kind of silly, right? That if we were to embed these things in our practice, like that's just silly. I dare you to pray on your knees, not in your heart. Like get down on your knees for a month and tell me that your prayer life isn't different. Some of us struggle with the use of our words. I dare you to put rocks in your mouth for a week and then tell me your speech life isn't different. The fact is we just don't want to do these things, right? I don't really want to stop using those words. I don't want to stop talking about that person. It's sport. So now back to the cell phone example. What, what might you do? Okay, so with the like, instead of talking about them, I could talk about them while they're in the room and uh, then we're having team. All right, what? You could shut your service off. How many of you are willing to do that? Okay, we got one. Others? Okay, so you start to build things in. Yeah, you could get a get a flip phone. accountability right so try this because it'd be wicked fun only your spouse knows the code right so every time you want to go on and play ruzzle or uh what's this it's it's like scrabble but the board is different so it's really frustrating what's it called oh yeah words yeah that's i I was trying to tease people out we got to get another one here um but (laughs) it's just a joke uh, but actually give them the cell phone. Try it for a month that you have to actually go to them and say, can you put in the code? So you have some built-in accountability, right? And it may seem ridiculous to you, but I, I dare you to try it, right? And whatever your issue is, right? Um, so I have to leave my laptop at work to put it beyond my reach because I just, I can't. Um, And even somebody saying to me, that just wouldn't be enough to stop me. I'd make up excuses. So I just put it out of my reach. You could just fill the room with these kinds of examples, and they're good conversations to have, frankly, because I think that God does expect some level of transformation on our part. And I think the more that you find yourself engaged in these practices, you find yourself opening up into more and not less. And to me, that's the real deception of sin. That it's not limitation that God is putting on. You actually find that your life is so qualitatively better that you can't fit back into that former way of life. You think about the amount of change that goes on 20 years from high school. And you can go back and you can fellowship and you can socialize with people but could you ever really go back? I would hope not. There's probably some disorder if you can't. right? The guy who twenty five years later shows up in his varsity letter jacket and he's not joking right that's That's abnormal. Um, I mean, wicked good on you that you can you still fit in the jacket, but you don't get psychology points for. What, what it takes to be that kind of person. So what we can do today is just a small amount. Um, I want to look at a passage actually that, that invites us to this. And there are lots of passages like it. And I hope uh, that, that this leads to some interesting conversations where we talk about these things. Because I think the paradigm on, on growing in our faith is, is skewed in a lot of ways. It's what kind of a person am I becoming and what kind of a person would I have to be in order to, um, like I, I look at the guy painting himself uh, as one of the patriot backers, and I, I won't lie to you, I think it's pathetic. I think you get some points for, for zeal, but I think what would have to happen uh, to me in order for me to become that kind of person. And it's a question not worth a- answering or, frankly, even asking. But then I look at counterexamples, right? People whose lives are compelling in all the best ways. And you know it when you see it. You see a person who just, they are not perfect, but relationally, emotionally, they're healthy Um, They're thoughtful about things like you you enjoy talking with them and conversing because there's real dialogue like there's just something compelling about that. So I always find myself in those interactions wondering what could I do in order to become that kind of person not just for myself but for other people. Now before I throw you into Isaiah 55 because Isaiah is a big book and and a little bit confusing Isaiah 5 kind of gives, real quickly, and this is on your outline, uh, Israel's situation. So God describes a vineyard, and for those of you that are hyper-literal, the vineyard is an image for Israel. He's not actually talking about gardening. I know minds are being blown all over the place. But he's describing this tender care that he has uh, for Israel. And he, he spends the first two verses describing all the things that he did. There's a hedge of protection around it. Everything is carefully pruned. There is not a single thing else that God could have done. He just, he tended this vineyard perfectly. But the question he asks himself in verses 3 and 4 is when the vineyard goes wild, he says, what more could I have done? Rhetorically, he wasn't looking for a list. And then God, after that, says, fine. <laughs> he pulls all that protection uh, and the, the summary verse, therefore my people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. And to move it out of the world of the image into the real world. Israel, you want to live like those nations? You want to live like those self-aggrandizing nations engaged in economic uh, abuse, engaged in abusing your neighbors, your You're evil. You go ahead and you live like them. So God says, I'm done here. My people go into exile for their lack of knowledge. And the question is, what more uh, could I have done? Fast forward a little bit to Isaiah 6, and I hope that this is a chapter that you've read before. Um, Isaiah gets to meet the Lord. And this is the one that always comes to my mind when people said that God told me something. Like, I wonder if God showed up like he did in Isaiah 6. And there isn't a corresponding fear of death, so I'm I'm guessing not. But then Isaiah said, he sees this vision of the Lord. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now Isaiah, frankly, is not a bad guy. If you read about him, he's... He's a respectable person, much like yourselves. He's he's a pretty solid guy. He's not as wicked as the worst Israelite. Yet, when he has this vision of God, how could he be anything other than a bug? Right? So compared to his countrymen, I'm not so bad, you know, and ties straight. I'm uh, not too engaged in this oppressive way of life that my neighbors are. But then all of a sudden he's stripped of all of his pretense. Uh, when he sees God, that I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. So he recognizes his individual sin, he recognizes corporate sin, and he recognizes the holiness of God. And then the rest of the book is just a description of these visions that Isaiah is given about Israel, about Babylon, about Tyre. It's just a. It, it's really quite a, quite an elaborate um, book. And my only point in raising that is to say that this is exactly what Isaiah experienced in terms of a compelling vision of God. Right? He didn't have. There was no ambiguity about it. Like, well, I think maybe God told me to go to Israel. I'm not quite sure. Maybe I should go and do this. There was absolute certainty about it. And if you've read the passage, you know that Isaiah's uh, mouth is actually burned by one of the coals. Uh, that he has, to, so he, I am a man of unclean lips. And that's exactly what God has to deal with. So, what does he do? He, he burns him, right? Think of Jacob with the dislocation of the hip. You might think that's kind of mean on God's part. But for all of Jacob's failures after that, I bet he remembered because it impacted his practice. Every time I go to walk, every time somebody asks me why I'm limping, i got to go back to that exchange with God. Every time somebody sees the, the scar on my face from that burning coal and asks me, what happened to your face? You have to say, well, I saw the Lord and he dealt with me uh, in, in less than gracious ways. <laughs> right? and, and that's fine because that's what the Bible describes about God. I don't remember who it is. Uh, but it's one of my favorite quotes that, I doubt very much that God uses a person until he wounds them very deeply. And that may or may not be true, but I think I could multiply examples of where God interacts with a person and it changes them. And what would it look like for you, right? If you were to think about what's the the single issue that, boy, if I had a magic wand and could wave over this issue of sinfulness, this attitude that I have could God actually turn that? And what would it look like? Because that's what we don't often do, right? To think about what would it be for me to become a person who could respond in robust, godly ways when people talk? Not retreating into the small universe of backbiting and quarrelsome behavior, What would it look like for me to open up into that vista? And that's exactly what Isaiah experiences here. There's pain involved. There might be awkward exchanges that have to happen to actually be reconciled to a person. Anyone experience that? And you find, and I guess for myself, because I have had those awkward exchanges, the relationship's actually better for it. And I don't quite know how to explain that other than It's the work of God. God can actually redeem those situations. And the only possible explanation is that it's him that's doing it. It wasn't your wisdom. It wasn't your knowledge. God could take this marriage and he could do something beautiful with it. Despite all of its brokenness, it would have to be God to do something. There's no possible way that it could be fixed. From a human standpoint. But that's what God is like. So let's turn to Isaiah 55 without any further ado. And I'm just going to read it. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit. But then that's it. Um, I think the less that is said, the better. Because if you get it, you just get it. You know what I mean? When you see something compelling, you just know. No one has to explain the sunrise to you. You don't have to have some sort of scientist next to you explain, why do I find this so beautiful? You just look at it and you you know that you're looking at something captivating and you're looking at something beautiful. And what if our lives were the same way? So, verse 10 for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and uh, making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word by which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. For you will go out with joy And be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord. For an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Do you notice what this passage says about you? Almost nothing. It doesn't put you at the center. It doesn't put your growth as though God needed you on his team. And in an age that is as selfish as ours, one of the things that I find compelling is that this is about all of creation busting loose to the praise of the creator. And you get to participate or not. Does it diminish any of the Lord's glory if I'm not there? No, it doesn't. And the more we can kind of snap ourselves out of this like, God really needs me on his team. You know, it's not going to be as praiseworthy unless I'm there doing whatever. This is all centered around the Lord. If you look in verse 13, it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. It's not about us. Yet, graciously, we get to participate, right? So it says almost nothing, but it's still, for my word... Uh, let's see. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. So you're there, right? This is all going to happen with us participating in it. But it's all of creation busting loose to the to the praise of the Creator for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. So what is the compelling vision that Isaiah 55 has to offer? One is the accomplishment of God's purposes. Verse 11, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Whatever God says, that's what's going to happen. There's no scraps there. When God sends his word forth in the same way that he sends forth rain, it yields fruit. Second, and not insignificant, is the grand scope of God's redemption. If we could somehow snap ourselves out of this it's about me mentality and recognize the grandeur and the scope of what God is doing. Because I'll be honest with you, a lot of the conversations I have it's sort of like six degrees of how quickly can I make this about me? Right? So, the the tragedy that happened in Paris. There were a few that it became like, how can I make this about me personally? Now, that's the exception, and I'm glad to report that, but... We need to be discerning about that kind of thing. That I would never say that it's not something that we need to be praying for. And by the way, other situations in the world that aren't getting quite as much uh, notoriety in terms of the atrocity. But that being said, to open this up so that it's about other people and recognizing uh, other people. So in our circumstances, can we turn and open ourselves up to the grandeur of what God might be doing in the life of another person? And how I might play a role in that. Not for my benefit, but for theirs. Right? So there's the grand scope. There's the undoing of the curse. And this one requires a little bit of explanation. If you're familiar with Genesis 3, if you're in the youth group, we just talked about it on Friday, just in case you forgot. Uh, 55.13, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. When the ground is cursed in Genesis 3, that's exactly what is, is said, that the ground will only yield thorns and thistles. So what God is saying here is that he's undoing the curse, that not just human beings are going to be liberated, but the ground itself is going to be liberated to be what God intended it to be. And then finally, permanence. Now this might be just a hobby horse of mine, um, I am so interested when the Bible talks about permanence because we live in an unstable world and even the best of circumstances change, right? You don't have to be alive very long to find that uh, things change, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in positive ways, but either way, it's change. So we had uh, our kids plus our, some of our nieces and nephews, and um, it was loud. <laughs> there, was, there was drum banging in the basement, Caleb was ripping on the guitar, like it, it was loud, and I like the silent reading room, uh, so I, I struggle with that a bit, but I keep reminding myself at times that there's going to come a day before too long, and it's going to be like that when I'm going to ache to hear that coming out of the basement, Right? It might not stop me from making com- comments, but I'm trying to. I'm trying to suppress that. To say that, um, to hear that uh, is something I'm going to miss. Or to listen to Stephen sit in the back seat and to sing, and it's you want to say something like <laughs> for just a second, right? But I don't want to do that because I know there's going to come a point where it's just going to be boring old me sitting in the car and there's going to be no sound of joy. And even if it was me singing, it would probably be shattering the windows and not leading to any kind of positive. So anyway, I, enough of my sob story. I, this is how I, I live my life. I look at my circumstances and I've always heard from people beyond me that like, when, when we got married, it was, well, you wait until the first year of marriage. Actually, the first year of marriage was great. Uh, but then it became, well, wait till you have kids. And yeah, there's, there's some of that, uh, but it's just joyful. And now it's wait till they're teenagers, and then once I get them all teenagers, then it's going to be wait till they get married. I, I understand that there's always the doom and gloom down the line, apparently. I uh, haven't experienced that yet, but um, to, to look and to say there's going to come a point where I'm going to miss this. And I think that this is exactly, in a sense, what Isaiah uh, is saying in God's word. A memorial to the Lord, an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. I don't know the full scope of what the new heavens and the new earth look like, but there's enough places in the Bible that talk about permanence that make me want to see. That it will be a place of dynamic interchange. It's not going to be boring, but at the same time, what role will memory play in that? And then what will those different things look like when there's no grief? in change. What will that look like? And that for me is a compelling vision of the future. And that's what the present has to do. You have to have a compelling vision of the future uh, in order to change the present. So that's just one example of a passage. I'm going to close with this and if we could cue up the the video. Um, This I'm going to talk about it for a second and then uh there's uh I can't remember his his name. But he does time-lapse videos, and I think I've used something similar before. But he leaves the camera in particular places for days, and it snaps a picture like every 20 seconds, and then he takes it and compresses it, and it's just really neat. And for you, the natural worldness may be a suffocating burden. But I find that the more I look at the scope of what God has done, the more it opens us up into more and not to to less. So this video is actually going to be my closing prayer. So after a couple minutes, if the worship team wants to come up, but just sit and enjoy it. Think about the words that are being sung and see, does this open me to more or to less? Does this diminish my world or does it expand it? And that's what life in Christ is. That's what my vision, I think the Bible's vision of life in Christ is, that you're opening up into more and not to less. So if we could play that.
1: Oh God, I am furrowed like the field Torn open like the dirt And I know that to be healed must be broken first. I am aching for the yield that you will harvest from this hurt. Abide in me, let these branches bear you. Of the garden, at the golden edge of dawn, at the glowing edge of spring, when the winter's edge is gone, and I can see the color green, I can hear the sower's song abide in me. Let these branches bear you fruit. Abide in me, Lord. Let Your word take root. Remove in me the branch that bears no fruit, and move in me, Lord, as I abide in You. As the rain and the snow fall down from the sky. And they don't return, but they water the earth and they bring forth life. Giving seed to the sower, bread for the hunger, so shall the word of the Lord be with a sound like thunder. And it will not return, it will not return, boy, we shall be led in peace and go out with joy. And the hills before us will raise their voices. And the trees of the field will clap their hands as the land rejoices. And instead of the thorn now, the cypress towers. And instead of the briar, the myrtle blooms with a thousand flowers. And it will make a name, make a name.